Hey now, other people call me Paul. Becky Matz at AOL.com. How are you doing? <laughs> Ouch. I don't know if I ever had an AOL. Oh, that's not true. I did. Don't tell. I did have an AOL address. Um, I'm doing good. At Lycos.com. Mm, Juno. That was a 1996 oh, email nice. client du jour. Do you want to yeah. share your MySpace handle with everyone? I didn't have one. Nice. Never had one. There's a lot of things I don't have. We could do a whole podcast episode. No Spotify. <laughs> never saw The Matrix. Never, I don't know. The Shining. You never saw The Shining. I don't think so. I can't remember. I don't think I did. Isn't it crazy though that we can do this? I sit here in my basement. You sit there in your bathroom or whatever. We call up. <laughs> we call somebody out across the country and we act like we're just sitting across from them. You know, it's amazing. It's, um, I mean, thank the Lord for it. If we didn't have it mm. without it, it would be so much more lonely through this whole last year. It'd be awful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm grateful for some things. And actually, that reminds me, I was I was thinking about, you know, my shortcomings the other day. And I realized I need to do a better job expressing thanks to our listeners, um, not because it adds to our stats, but because I think my mom can just, you know, keep clicking and keep giving our stats a boost. But, <laughs> but because the fact that you're listening means that you care about academic and life outcomes of other people's kids, as they say. Um, and that's the only way we can make this whole machine work, whatever that means for more people, mm -hmm. including for people who have been shut out and excluded for way too long. So thank you for listening. You are appreciated. Yeah. And we'd love it. If you reach out to us, our website is just like the podcast name minus podcast and plus.org 3dl4us.org. We might bite, but we're not rabid as far as we know. Becky, should uh, should we let our guests in the in through the alley door? What does that mean? So I'm asking if you'll let our guest in through the alley door to the podcast. We Never mind. I would like to let Aaron in. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for thanks for doing that, Becky. All right. Well, I, it's gotta be, be it's gotta be better than this, right? <laughs> My name is Erin Duffy, and I feel grounded by three-dimensional learning. Hey, Erin. It really is great. It's great to have you here. Yeah, it's good to be here. What has your, um, what's your week been like? Um, so we're on the quarter system here, so it's actually finals week. So it's quite convenient mm. to um, that you pick this week because I don't have to teach this week. Oh, nice. Uh, I feel like we should go ahead and, and set some expectations for your experience here today, Aaron. Um, I, I really feel like it should be less traumatizing than um, I was trying to think of like a good landmark or a, a comparison experience. So it should be no more traumatizing than if you set a mouse trap in your house and you woke up to like a 20 pound rat that accidentally got his toe stuck in it and he's just oh ticked God. off and you have to figure out what to do with it. So that this should be no more painful than that. Is that a realistic okay. bar? Um, wow. I guess Becky can know if that is an approximation of what this is. Although okay. I can say in grad school, we had a mouse in our apartment and we set traps and I refused to actually deal with the dead mouse myself, so I made one of my friends come over and do it. Nice. It would have been better to say. It would 
be less traumatizing than giving a talk at a conference if that's something that is you know some people don't like that kind of thing I feel like boring. these are very different spectrum like ends of the spectrum <laughs> um giving a talk is fun and dealing with a dead mouse is not fun yeah see that Paul's gonna cut this all out but it's fine he's no, actually I, not I was... he's actually in the blur. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was trying to set the bar, you know, down here so that anything better than that was going to be a pleasant upgrade. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's been pleasant so far. Yeah. Upgrade with two, upgrade with two Ds. If you have any, if we have any idiocracy fans out there, probably I know I know Becky has no idea what I'm talking about. And, uh, Rude. Um, I didn't know you were a Syracuse alum. I was there too. Yeah, I uh, I noticed that you also went to Syracuse, so go Orange. I looked at your dates, and I'm I'm pretty sure we didn't overlap there, unless it took you like seven years to do your undergrad. Which probably no, I uh, I decided to do pretty much everything in my academic career and what I thought I was supposed to do. So it's like I'll do undergrad in four years, and I'll do grad school in five years, and I'll do a two year postdoc, and now I'll be a professor. Hmm. Check check. Yep. Cool. You're a chem chem student there, right, Erin? Yes. So I chose Syracuse for their School of Education. I planned to go into teaching high school chemistry as my career. Um, that was kind of like my goal when I started college. But then I, a uh, combination of, I took physical chemistry and started learning about quantum mechanics. I started doing research in a lab. And I had my first placement in a suburban high school, and I decided that of all the things I was doing, I wanted to keep doing research in physical chemistry. So that's hmm. when I left the School of Education and decided to just focus on going to grad school for chemistry. That's interesting, but it um, kind of, that seed has been there, right? Because yeah, that seed of education and wanting to teach um, this has been there for a while. Yeah, so I feel like I've kind of come back to where I started in a way. It's sort of like made a circle, but the circle didn't, it's a little different than what I thought it would be. My five-year-old is kind of obsessed at looking at Google Maps satellite stuff, and she'll do it like as long as you let her. So I, I do that too, actually. And I zoomed mm-hmm. in on you. <laughs> <laughs> well, not you. Wonder where she gets Somewhere it from. Near you. <laughs> I found something called Boomer's Drive-In. Is that an awesome place or... Um, I've heard of it, but I haven't been there. (laughs) So if you are, if you've been fast forwarding through this podcast to the point where we actually try to start talking about serious stuff, I think we're almost there. Maybe not. I never know. But um, I am jealous of your spot. Can you give us a rundown of like the institution that is Western Washington University for people that may not know much about it? Sure. So Western Washington University is a public institution. It is considered a medium-sized comprehensive university. Um, If you like to classify things by sports, I think we're division two. We don't have a football team, um, but we have about 15,000 undergrad or 50,000 students, I think, um, Hmm. undergraduate, possibly with graduate. We have up to, we have a master's program, but no doctoral students. Yeah, we have a nice little campus on a hill. Yeah, that's, that's Western. Go Vikings. Vikings. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's what we are. So you are an assistant Viking professor there in the chemistry department, which makes sense. But um, yes. then it also says that you like to smite people. What's up with that? 
Uh, yeah, pretty similarly. Um, smiting and smate. So I'm jointly appointed. Oh, our... smate. Yeah. Um, I had confusion about what that was when I was applying for the job. I still have confusion about what it is today sometimes. Um, so <laughs> I'm jointly appointed in the Department of Chemistry, which is pretty much what you expect a department to be. And then also in SMATE, which stands for Science, Math, and Technology Education. Um, mm. And what that is... So you're, not, you're not striking persons with a firm blow. I'm not. I'm not smiting people in SMATE. Um, okay. I am preparing future teachers. <laughs> um, so what SMATE is, is um, it is basically our science education center. Our mission is largely focused on preparing future science teachers at both the, mostly the elementary and middle school level um, is what we teach, but we also have hmm. methods courses as well. So we have some connection to our school of education. So it's slightly confusing because we have this education center in the College of Science and Engineering where teachers take courses or pre-service teachers take courses. But then there's also the College of Education where they're also having their majors. So it's slightly confusing from basically every perspective. For me, practically, um, what I have been teaching so far are our science content courses for pre-service teachers. Uh, this next quarter, I'll be teaching a course called Matter and Energy and Physical Systems, or as I like to call it, Physics for Elementary School Teachers. Cool. If we're honest with ourselves, all of life is slightly confusing from every angle. At least Gosh. slightly. Every day. Yeah. I think I'm the most confused of all three of us here all the time. <laughs> I'm always confused. <laughs> You're just the one who's admitting it. We're I guess. all confused. <laughs> Yeah, Becky's like proud of her confusion. Usually. <laughs> but anyway, that does sound kind of confusing. It is. And you are now officially working with some of your new colleagues on a grant that just got funded to look at student engagement and scientific practices in undergraduate biology, chemistry, and physics, and looking at the lab courses from what I could gather. Yeah. We just, um, we just got off the phone with Justin, who told us about his chemistry-focused lab stuff. So it's that this fits in nicely with this arc. So how did that um, collaboration across disciplines like that come to be? Were you all smiting each other? Uh, three of us were smiting each other. Um, so it came about because, uh, so Dimitri Dunas Frazier is a uh, also an assistant professor, but he's jointly appointed in physics and SMATE. So he's one of those these persons like me with two homes. Um, but he's in physics and we uh, talked a lot. I shadowed him when I, before I taught physics for elementary school teachers. So we started talking around the springtime, I think, about potentially applying for a grant together. Um, and then we also brought along Dr. Norda Stevenson, who is newly hired in chemistry and SMATE as well. Norda and I had worked together um, when she worked for Justin as a postdoc and while I was a postdoc with Melanie Cooper. So we already had that experience of working together in relation to scientific practices. So our interests align in that way. And then finally, um, Dimitri knew Dr. Lena Dahlberg, who's an associate professor in biology. Um, and she's not a smiter or a smater, but she has interests in education <laughs> um, in biology education research. So the four of us got together and thought about what would we like to focus on 
and this idea of looking at how are scientific practices differently or similarly incorporated across the lab courses in physics, biology, and chemistry came about. So we're kind of looking at it from like a structural perspective. What do the um, instructors or other personnel associated with that course value about um, what students should do in labs? And how do they give students those opportunities through the types of assignments or activities they assign to students? But then we're also looking at it from the practical and personal perspective of how does this actually play out in the lab? That's awesome. Yeah, so I'm really excited. That's cool that you um, had a fellow language speaker with you already there and you could kind of gang up on the other two people. And... <laughs> yeah, well, it didn't feel like ganging up. It's been a really enjoyable collaboration so far with writing the grant. It was the first grant I ever wrote. So having this team to help me do it was really awesome. Um, nice. And what I also am really excited about is that we are across disciplines, which makes me feel a lot like the way I feel when I work with all you guys um, with the 3DL project. Confused. That was one of the confused, but also excited and also really mm -hmm. interested in the work we do. And I feel like what we do is important. Mm -hmm. And I love getting all the different perspectives from the different uh, disciplines. So the fact that I can sort of establish my own multidisciplinary group here at Western is super exciting to me. Don't leave us, though. That wouldn't I won't cool. leave you. I'm hoping that we'll work together forever. And when we next <laughs> apply for a grant, maybe I can bring along Norda, Dimitri, and Lena. Ooh. You mentioned at the beginning that you said you feel grounded by um, three-dimensional learning. So does that connect to, like, how, how does that connect? How does that connect to your experience? What, 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 say more about that. Yeah, so I think it, it helps ground my research and I think it also helps ground my teaching. Um, whenever I'm like working to develop an assignment or an assessment for class, it can feel really stressful to be like, oh my God, I gotta put this together. What am I gonna put in here? What counts? But if I go back to three-dimensional learning, then I can remember, okay, what is it that I really care about for students to learn and be able to do? and grounding myself in, okay, let me have students engage in scientific practices in the context of some core idea. And then maybe through a lens of one of the cross-cutting concepts, that helps me, it guides my writing of the assessments I give students. Okay, I, I'm really shocked that this fits in the way it does, but Becky um, pointed me to this article this week. Mm. Uh, I'm trying to like personify 3DL for you. You're talking about it as grounding you and you're talking about sitting down and, you know, doing these things, writing assessments or whatever. So I want to see if this resonates with, the, with that. She says, she's talking about writing in general, but I think we can apply it here. She says, it can feel like it's, you're trying to scale a glacier. It's hard to get your footing and your fingertips get all red and frozen and torn up. Then your mental illnesses arrive at a desk, like your sickest, most secretive relatives. And they pull up chairs in a semicircle around the computer and they try to be quiet but you know they're there with their weird coppery breath leering at you behind your back. <laughs> I, I thought of that when you were talking about sitting down. And try. So 3DL is like, uh, I don't know. I don't know who, who how, he, how they, he or she fits into this. 3DL can help me know. cope with all of those external factors that will stress me out when it comes to yeah. doing my job. Mm. So, you know, they talk about all your relatives coming to the table and just staring at you. I mean, you can, as an assistant professor, you can feel like, 
oh, well, the department's going to review what I'm doing when they do a peer observation, or when I put this in my dossier for annual review, I have to talk about what I'm doing. And at least if I ground what I'm doing in three-dimensional learning, I can feel proud of what I'm doing, and I can also feel like I can justify the choices I've made as an instructor. I was just going to say for the our listeners that that's from um, Anne Lamont's Bird by Bird um, book, which is really therapeutic if you're somebody who's ever had trouble writing something and you feel like you yeah. need to write and you have trouble getting started, you should look up Anne Lamott and Bird by Bird. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to claim it as my own, but I just got so excited to share it that I forgot to put yeah. the citation in there. At the no top. worries. Need the references. <laughs> okay. Uh, we got a little bit off track here, but so Aaron was talking about where they're going to go with this project. And she was talking about looking at what, people our students are doing in lab so if you were say it wasn't uh the time of that it is but if you were to walk by a lab where um students were engaging in scientific practices would if i were to walk by a lab where that was happening would i be able to tell or would I, at least by looking in the in the door or would i have to go in and, and look a little deeper and ask ask some questions what would i ask maybe I think you would have to look a little deeper. Um, it's hard to tell what students are actually engaged in just by looking at them. So just because if you're working with you know, chemicals and flasks and mixing stuff together, mm. or just because you're measuring the acceleration of a falling object, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're engaging in a scientific practice. Mm. So you can't really tell what if someone is engaging in a practice, if you don't also know what they're thinking about. So I think you do have to get in there and ask some questions. You should be able to ask a student in lab, what are you trying to figure out right now? So you gotta, you have to know what they're thinking. You can throw them in the MRI machine. Probably wouldn't tell us much either, huh? Yeah, it would. So, uh, you know, people do FMR eye studies to see what mm. brain activity there is. So it might help you know if they are thinking but not necessarily <laughs> what they are thinking about. Yeah. It reminds me of a one of the comments I got as a lab TA in grad school. One of the comments that always stuck out to me was somebody who said, stop asking us what we think. We've already thought about it and we don't know. That's why we're asking you. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I've always had kind of like a love-hate relationship with that comment. So I think yeah. about it. I think about it a lot. I think about that student. So. Yeah, I mean, there definitely has to be some amount of buy-in to what it means to learn. It's easy to go into a classroom as a student and be like, I hope that the teacher is going to tell me what to do and what to think. Hmm. But then we know that if we want someone to learn, they have to construct that knowledge themselves. We can't just stick our heads against their forehead and be like, all right, transmitting knowledge at this time. It's part of what asking questions is. And that can definitely be frustrating as a student be like, um, I asked you a question because I didn't know. But at the same time, the instructor should be trying to ask questions that help students think in productive ways. Yeah. Um, mm. And, you know, there's you can be skilled at that or you can be unskilled and lead to more frustration. But it all takes it all takes practice, it takes practice to help people do practices. Engaging students in these practices and keeping them engaged is not something that's easy, which 
starts to bring us to some people whose role in the bigger picture kind of a 3DL, I think is sometimes overlooked, but but never by the people that are in there doing it, um, never by the instructors who are actually in the classroom. So that, you know, we're talking about teaching assistants or different variations on that name. How does that work in most universities or in yours or whatever? Yeah, so teaching assistants or TAs can come in a variety of flavors. You can have graduate TAs, you can have undergraduate TAs, and I feel like undergraduate TAs come in even more names, such as learning assistant, <laughs> such as learning assistant, so that's ULA, mm. a teaching assistant, assistant, a TAA, I have heard. Um, like inception, <laughs> assistant right? inception. Um, or as I was called when I was an undergraduate TA, I was a physics coach. So... Yeah, that didn't sound professional. So that's definitely not what I wrote on my CV. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of different names for these kinds of instructors that are students, but they all play a similar role in helping to run the classroom. Um, so a lot of the time for um, a teaching assistant or a learning assistant, um, they'll be actually leading a class of students. So that could be a lab section you can have TAs and LAs in lecture classes, but then also particularly at larger institutions, there are things called recitation sections, also called discussion section, also called quiz mm -hmm. section, which are these subsets of the large lecture course um, that meet in smaller groups and are also led by a TA independently. It's oftentimes in these smaller settings that students are given the opportunities to really engage more closely and more deeply with the things that they're trying to learn in class. So it's in these settings that an instructor might intentionally try to put activities that can engage students in three-dimensional learning. So the TA is really playing the role here of trying to help facilitate that kind of deep intellectual engagement with students. Hmm. Can we can we make any generalizations about why people quote become TAs? They're not they're not all like aspiring teachers, right? Right. Um, so particularly for graduate students, a lot of people who are TAs are TAs so that they can get paid. Um, they may not be doing it for any interest or desire to teach. Mm -hmm. That isn't to say all students are just in it for the money, and some might really take pride in trying to be a good instructor. I think it's a little bit different for undergraduate teaching assistants because it's usually like a, it is a job sometimes that they can get paid for, but it's not something that's a requirement for them to stay in their degree program necessarily. Um, so the people applying for this might be a little bit more interested in actually helping people learn or have some interest in teaching. Hmm. I always found that I would see interest from undergrad learn interest from undergraduate students in wanting to be learning assistants if they wanted to like review material for the MCAT like they would really want to come back and you know mm -hmm. ULA for intro bio or organic yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I've definitely heard that as well. I'd like to talk about what they do in a lab course a little bit more. I guess part of it's logistical, right? You got to clean the beakers or mm -hmm. whatever. That's my that's my chemistry knowledge coming yeah. through. But <laughs> I feel like, again, they're in, a, they're in a really unique position to get right in there and, and you know, help that student, whatever, into their zone of proximal development or whatever, whatever lingo you use. Yeah. But just to keep them going, I think it's an important role. Yeah, it is. It's a super important role. And 
a TA in lab has to wear a lot of hats. One of the roles in lab is certainly safety in general, just making sure your students come out alive and don't hurt themselves. Um, low, low, low bar, Aaron. Low bar. Low bar. That's like the first, like, that's like the bare minimum. Make sure your students aren't dead. Um, but we have these higher aspirations that we want students to learn something from lab. And, you know, it does turn out that if you ask a group of instructors what you want students to learn from lab, you're not going to get a consistent answer. If your whole goal is just to have students do a calculation, we wouldn't consider that to be engaging in the practice of using mathematical thinking. But if your goal is to help them make sense of what their calculation means and use it to interpret or make a prediction about their experiments or a phenomenon in general, then that can start getting you to the point of engaging in a scientific practice and really making meaning of the types of activities you're asking students to do. And as a TA, I mean, that's not something that any of us like intrinsically knows how to do. Most of us haven't been in a classroom where we had to do three-dimensional learning or engage in scientific practices. Yeah. The amount of preparation that TAs get to before they even teach a class varies widely from program to program. Sometimes it's just, hey, can you use the fire extinguisher? And then, <laughs> all right, you can go and teach lab. Um, and other times there might be more purposeful um, uh, workshops where they learn about pedagogy and instructional strategies and how students learn. So it, it can really vary widely. I definitely remember fire extinguisher training. <laughs> yes. Like a, key, a key part of our day. I wanted to ask a devil's advocate question, um, and I want. And the question is, can you think of a? Um, we've just been talking about labs, so I'm thinking about like a lab activity. Can you think of a lab activity that is not 3D, but you find still super valuable or good, however you want to define good? Or the flip side of the question, can you think of a lab activity that you would characterize as 3T, 3D, but you don't think of it as very effective or quote good. Do those exist? Um, so there's certainly utility in developing skills that are important to being able to be an experimentalist in a particular field. So we all want in chemistry, for example, we all want students to be able to weigh solids accurately or measure volumes accurately. Um, and we want them to be able to you know, make transfers safely and conduct chemical reactions. Wait, do you do you look at the bottom of the of the bubble or the top of it? Uh, you mean the little the little curve, the meniscus? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's the bottom. Uh, okay. Generally, uh, that is literally. If you ask some professors what they want students to learn, that's one thing they want students to learn from laboratory is to read from the bottom of the menis of the meniscus. So these skills certainly are important, um, but I don't think it has to be mutually exclusive of three-dimensional learning. I think you can learn mm -hmm. skills in the context of three-dimensional learning. So if you take your existing lab and you look at it and you're like, wow, all I do is ask students to make a data table and then calculate percent error, there's more you can ask students to do with their calculations, for example. There's more you can ask them to do um, 
with analyzing data, you can also ask for an interpretation or to think about what it means. And that's where I think three-dimensional learning is really helpful, at least in the way we're, we're working with it, with our 3D lab, the assessment protocol, where we have operationalized what it means to engage in a scientific practice. So you can then look at what are you asking them to do? And this criteria in the 3D lab can help you look at the questions you're doing and say, okay, yep, there's a phenomenon. Okay, yes, I asked them to you know, make a graph with their data. And then three, there's that last step of, okay, they need to provide some sort of interpretation of what this means. And you can see, oh, that's just something I need to add in here. And mm -hmm. it's not that you need to make a giant change to what you're doing. It's just make a small tweak to the way that you're asking students to think about what they've done. I do like Becky's question, I think. Um, and I, my, it's a challenge to me now to come up with a 3D task that's just garbage and doesn't do anything <laughs> for anybody. Yeah. <laughs> but the fact, that the fact that it's hard to do that, to, I think, says something about 3DL. Um, but let's... Um, you mentioned the word utility at some point. That got me going all over the place. But let's try to give this podcast some utility value. Say for, Oof. let's say for an instructor, <laughs> <laughs> can't always be fun. Uh, say for an instructor who does, who maybe is in a spot where they are given a, you know, they're teaching a lab, and they're given a, a learning, a teaching assistant who does know how to use the fire extinguisher, but that's about it. What, um, <laughs> what are some? And it's not, you know, it's nobody's fault, but there's not like a workshop and at wherever they are or whatever they're not. What are some things that they should be planning for and thinking about, you know, say for the fall as they want to help their TAs help their students more? Yeah. So I think that even if there aren't formal training opportunities, mostly there's some degree of supervision of TAs, either maybe it's like a weekly meeting or at least maybe an email yeah. check-in. So you can help TAs think of what kinds of questions can I ask students to help guide their thinking toward more productive uses of their knowledge, as opposed to just telling them what to do. And I, at this point, this is where I think leveraging the expertise of more experienced TAs can be really helpful because they're the ones on the ground who are listening to students' questions day in and day out over and over. So someone who's already taught a course can remember what was their experience when they taught this lab for the first time? What kinds of things were students asking? Where were they having struggles? And they can help to brainstorm beforehand with new TAs um, and also share that information with the instructor of what they did that they thought helped move students along. So these sorts of discussions to have as the instructor with your TAs, but I think also among TAs themselves can be really valuable. Um, just in preparing for trying to teach to the next week's lab. Yeah. Um, is that uh, you? It's, it, it seems like it would be nice to have kind of repeat offenders or people that have done that have TA'd the class before. Um, is that kind of part of the structure? Yeah. So I do think it's pretty uncommon for someone to only TA for one semester. So I do think, yeah, there's certainly going to, there's a likelihood of having these repeat offenders, or as I prefer to say, these experienced TAs um, <laughs> who have a really valuable, uh, who are really valuable sources of knowledge when it comes to the nuts and bolts of actually teaching a course. In some places have sort of a reward structure with that where they have head TAs or lead TAs, and they can put 
the experienced TA in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know you said you still got one more quarter to go for the year. So summer is a bit, a bit off. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was wondering, um, you know, what's something you're looking forward to sort of in that period of like professional rest, I imagine, I ho- hopefully you get some rest over the summer. Um, oh, I hope so. <laughs> I, I, the, the way I like to ask the question is like, what are some of the things that are like slowly getting that are slowly sinking in your inbox. I don't know. What's something that you're thinking about this summer um, or in a time of professional rest? Yeah, I think what I'm most excited about is now that our grant is funded to to really start to dive into the work um, that we plan to do. So it's, I think it's a little bit difficult during the quarter to really focus a lot on research um, when you're also teaching. So I'm really excited to do this across the disciplines what do, what do the other disciplines um, think about when it comes to scientific practices um, for their introductory students? Cool. But also, you know, what I'm excited yeah. about coming up is I can start attending our additional meetings with the 3DL4US group. Um, the, happy hour, the happy hour meetings? Yeah, I can come to our happy hours. I'm so excited. Nice. Those are fun. Are they at four? If No. Two thirty. <laughs> it's early happy hour. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's Friday every day. Every hour is happy hour on Fridays. I mean, as long as the number of drinks you've had is is less than the time, like the where the little hand is, right? Isn't that how it works? So you're <laughs> saying as long as I have fewer than eleven mimosas by happy yeah. hour, it's fine. And then and then you reset at noon too, so you don't. You, you, you oh, can I could just start again. Before noon. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you need to, uh, will you indulge us a little bit with some weird questions? I would love to. Okay. If you were on Jeopardy, what category would make you really happy to see? And it can't be chemistry or 3DL. I don't think they have a 3DL Jeopardy. They had a 3DL. <laughs> so let me tell you something. When I was younger, I loved Jeopardy so much. Um, I wanted to be a Jeopardy contestant. Um, oh. And I loved Alex Trebek and rest in peace. Hmm. Uh, so what category would I like on Jeopardy? Uh, I don't, do I have to be good at this category or would it just make me happy that it's there? It would just make you happy. Oh, I was going to say, um, household cats, Mm. the domestic cat. I should have also put cats on your, that can't be, uh, can't be cats either. Cats Cats are, that was my fault. Why can't cats be one? (laughs) I I haven't talked about cats at all. I feel like that would be allowed. I'll vote it. I haven't actually watched since. I haven't watched Jeopardy in a long time because I don't watch a lot of like non-streaming television at home anymore. I don't even know how to watch. I don't even know how to watch streaming television, much <laughs> less non-streaming television. Wait, how have you survived the pandemic if you haven't been binging Netflix all the time? I go to bed really early. Oh, no, I, I've heard there's a term called revenge procrastination where you stay up late doing all the things you couldn't do during the day. Oh, uh, yeah. I didn't know they had a name. We've talked that's about that before. That's what uh, my pal Dimitri <laughs> called it and um, realized when he was describing it, that's a thing I have been doing all quarter. <laughs> and it's not healthy. <laughs> if you had, or would you rather um, hunt and gather all your food or only eat McDonald's? <laughs> um, I'm going to go with only eat McDonald's because I'm pretty <laughs> sure if I had to hunt and gather my food, I would die within like three days as opposed to a month. 
I think they have some healthier <laughs> options these days. I don't know. I haven't been to McDonald's, but you can at least get a smaller portion. Yeah, that's true. The one the one pack McNugget. <laughs> I think the smallest you can get is four. Get a happy meal and then you get a toy as well. True. Maybe even a cat. A cat toy. Maybe um, if they have beanie babies again. Okay, one more. When um when the zombie apocalypse comes and you have to choose you, you can only choose one weapon, what is what's it what would your weapon be? Hmm, that's a good question. Because I don't feel like I have any skill with any weapons. Um, Not all weapons require skill. Or have sufficient strength to use a weapon that might be useful. Like, I don't know how zombies... Chem- like, a, chemical, a chemical weapon? A chemical weapon. I don't know how zombies become incapacitated. <laughs> but I assume that, like, you could maybe decapitate them. So I'm like, I don't know, chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> chainsaws are like the hardest thing to handle although they do have like I, I do want one is they do have they have like little electric ones now that yeah do, that can do the job it's, it's got to be small enough because i'm only five feet tall oh. it can't be that big well <laughs> a lot of things are hard to handle if i try to use a sword i'd probably kill myself too so basically it doesn't matter what weapon i use i'm dying by my own inability to use this weapon or the zombie eats me yeah Plus, you're not really up into the hunting, hunting and gathering scene either. Right. So this I don't is think awful. McDonald's is going to be open. McDonald's is probably not. It's, it never <laughs> closes. Yeah, it's definitely the way to go. That's what I would have said too. Nice. All right. Well, Aaron, um, appreciate your time, and we're looking forward to seeing what comes out of this collaboration you told us about. I'm, I am at least. Yeah. Maybe back I'm looking forward. Thanks for having me. Hopefully, this wasn't the worst. <laughs> oh no! Was it? Was it better than the twenty twenty pound rat? all that matters that's true this was definitely better than finding a dead rat in my kitchen score i thought you were gonna cut that part out a feather in her hat as becky says Mm -hmm. (laughs) all right take care all right see ya thanks for having me bye bye bye